yet, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Over the past five weeks, we've been journeying through this letter, this epistle written by Peter, this apostle of almost legendary status, right? This person that we're so familiar with his highs and his lows that we used in such great ways in the Gospels. But this letter is written somewhere around 25 to 30 years after the events of the Gospels, after Jesus has died and risen again. At this point in time, Peter is no longer a fisherman in Galilee. He's no longer a disciple in Judea and Samaria. He's now a pastor in Rome. He's moved to the capital of the Roman Empire, this powerful empire, this decadent empire, this sinful and soon-to-be very evil empire. He's writing to Christians, first-generation believers, in the area of what is now modern-day Turkey. He's writing to them to encourage them and to warn them. He's writing them to warn them that, that persecution is coming, depending on which Bible scholar we believe. This book is written somewhere between A.D. 59 and A.D. 64. If it was A.D. 59, then the persecution is coming. If it's A.D. 64, the persecution has already started and is in progress. If it's somewhere in between, then it's Depends exactly where the letter was written, but we don't know exact, but we know that there's great persecution against the church. This is historically proven apart from the Bible, apart from church tradition. We can go back and read Roman history, and we discover that Nero, this evil emperor, is going to start persecuting Christians and and massacring them, executing them by the tens of thousands in very sadistic, evil, torturous ways. So Peter writes to tell them, hey, persecution is coming. Suffering is coming. That this is something that you are going to endure for a little while. Again and again, he uses this phrase, for a little while. He's trying to encourage them with this eternal perspective that, yes, they may harm you physically. They may throw you in jail. They may persecute you. They may even take your life. But the things that they can do to you here on earth are so temporary. They are so fleeting if we keep an eternal perspective and see what God is up to in an eternal mindset. The reality is those, that same warning for those 2,000 years ago we can apply to us. Most of us will never suffer the way that they suffered 2,000 years ago for following Jesus. I, I'd be very surprised. I can't say I'm not a prophet. I can't say for 100% certainty. But my guess is this generation is not going to experience those things, at least not in America. They certainly are happening in other parts of the world. Uh, there, there, there are events and, and persecutions right now. There are places where it's very unsafe for people to follow Jesus. And those believers have such a, such a sincere and pure faith as they've grabbed a hold of this same mentality that, hey, this suffering is just for a little while. But our God is the God of eternity. So today we close our look at 1 Peter. We've journeyed through and discovered where we fit in the story of God. We've seen that we fit as a light to people who are lost, as an encouragement to one another, as servants to the body, as reflections of Jesus' sacrifice and his love. And so today we finish with part six of our look at where we fit in the story of God. We're going to journey through each verse of chapter five, the smallest chapter of Peter's epistle. There's, I believe, 14 verses, and we can break these verses into four different sections. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning 
on the first section. So by the time the first section's over, you're going to be looking at your watch and saying, we got three more sections of this. We're not going to get home to our Labor Day cookout. I promise the last three sections will go quicker. Hang with me. You'll understand, I think, why we spend more time on the first section. The first four verses is the first section. It's a paragraph in the NIV. Uh, and it says this, starting in verse 1. It says, to the elders among you. Now, when Peter is addressing the elders among us, he's not just talking about those who are physically or generationally older than us. He's actually referring to a positional eldership. There was elders in the early church. The elders in the early church actually comprised pastors as well as those who helped pastors lead the flock. And he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So he says, hey, I'm pastoring a church just like you are. So I want to encourage the leaders. He's, he speaks just for four verses in his five chapters of his letter. He takes four verses to address leadership. He says, I want to speak to you as, as someone who's right there in the midst of it with you. I want to come alongside you as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's sufferings. He reminds them, hey, I'm not just talking about stuff that I've heard about. I'm not just telling you something that was secondhand, but I saw with my own eyes the way Jesus suffered and the way he was victorious. He says, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So he says, look, I'm, I'm right there with you as a pastor, as a leader, as an elder in the church. I'm a little bit different in that I saw Jesus firsthand, but I'm also very much like you in that all of us are going to receive a great blessing when Jesus comes again. All of us are going to, to, to have incredible things come into our life when Jesus is fully revealed. Verse 2, he says, here's what I want for you, elders. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Let's venture through that verse a little bit together. He says, elders' responsibility is to be a shepherd. They use this, this picture of a shepherd who takes care of sheep. And he says that elders take care of whose flock? Whose flock? That was not, that's not a trick question. Uh, God's flock, right? Easy one. Why, why is that significant? Sometimes I, I talk to people and, and they are so sincere and so kind when they say things like this, but they're still wrong. That I, I hear this all the time, Pastor, I, I just love your church. Uh, and, and I know what they mean by that. Like, yes, I, I'm, I'm in a leadership position in the church. And, and in one sense, it is my church because this is the church where I worship, right? This is the church that, where my family is plugged in. So this is my church and that this is all of our church. But please, please, please understand, this isn't my church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. Uh, and and, and it, it can't be mine. It's not designed to be mine. Peter addresses the elders, the leaders, and he says, look, you've got to be a shepherd of his flock, not your flock. You guys aren't my sheep, right? You're, you're, you're God's sheep. And yes, I've been given a role as a shepherd to, to watch you and to caretake for you, but, but you're not mine. I remember in high school, a very, very strong impression from a sermon, uh, Pastor Terry Howell, who's a pastor at church in North Carolina where, where my family went when I was in high school. My parents actually went for years. Um, he was one of his first Sundays as, as the new pastor of that church. And he got up there and he said it, he, he had a prophetic gift. He, he, God would give him these words and oftentimes they'd be in picture form. He, he would get kind of a vision of something. He said, here's what I felt like God showed me. He, he, he said, I was like, I took a, 
uh, a handful of sand. And I was holding this handful of sand, and he said, I want you to hold my people like this. And then I squeezed on the sand, and what happened when I squeezed on the sand is the sand ran through the fingers, right? He says, God's calling me to hold his people like a handful of sand. We hold them lightly. We hold them gently. We don't squeeze and try to hold on to them. Why? Because they're not ours. Just recently, we've had some people leave City Church. We had a family, James, Jimmy and Jill Ballantyne, who moved to North Carolina. I went on vacation and got home to find out that, man, their whole life had been uprooted and they were leaving. And, man, that, that stings a little bit. God didn't consult with me about that. Right? He didn't give me a heads up. He didn't tell me, hey, I'm going to be moving one of, one of the best families in your church, people that you really love, people that your kids have connected with. He didn't give me a heads up. Why? Because they're not my sheep. Right? God doesn't have to run that through me. They're his. We could, we could build a whole incredible church of people that God has moved to other parts of the country out of city church. We could build another whole great church of people that God has moved to other churches in our area out of city church. We could build a whole other church of people that God has seen leave City Church and go nowhere. I don't think God took those people out, right? So there's different levels of, of leaving, right? There's different ways that people leave. But ultimately, that doesn't matter because they're not mine. They're his, right? And so I'm called to hold God's people very loosely. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes my flesh wants to hold on a little tight, especially when I think people are leaving for, for reasons that don't make sense or for reasons that are going to bring harm into their life. But that's not my responsibility, my responsibility is to hold, hold loosely while people are here. In fact, we oftentimes in Discovery, we even talk about, man, what, what happens when you leave the church? And I know that seems kind of jarring to people, like you're just now joining a church and we're talking about you're going to leave one day. But the reality is most of us aren't going to die as members of City Church. Right? Like, just statistically speaking, the majority of us, unless Jesus comes back this week, which, man, praise God if he does, but unless his return is imminent, most of us will move on in some form or another to another church, to another area. Like, that's just the way it works. And so God brings people into a flock for a season. And I'm not called to hold on tightly, and sometimes I want to. But i got to remind myself that's not my job. They're not my people. They're his people. So Peter says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. And then he says, I want you to watch over them, right? He's using this picture of a shepherd. We can think of, of David, right? David's one of the most famous shepherds in the Bible. What did David do with his sheep? He, he protected the sheep, right? He, he killed a lion and he killed a bear and he watched over them. We get this picture that David probably had a, a pretty affectionate relationship with his sheep, Right? He'd take his harp out there and he'd, he'd play music for the sheep. Uh, he'd write songs with his sheep. We, we get this idea that there was a, a connection, a bond between David and the flock. And I, I think that's the picture of God, what God wants for a good shepherd. Not the good shepherd, right? A good under-shepherd uh, who, who's watching over his sheep. And then notice what he says. He says, not because you must... But because you're willing, we've we, we got a phrase we like to use when we plug somebody into a new ministry or a new area. It's like, we, we, we don't have to, we get to, right? Some, some mornings that alarm clock goes off and it's like, you're serving in Kid City that morning. You're like, really? Why did I sign up for this, right? Like, they, they can handle it without me. Can, can I just be real? Sometimes my alarm clock goes off and I'm like, really? Why did I sign up for this? Like, uh, I know you want a pastor who like wakes up on Sunday mornings with the anointing and the power of God and I can't wait to get here and bring the word because God's given me this awesome opportunity and I should be that way, but, but some mornings I'm not. I'll just be real. This was one of those mornings. Uh, I woke up this morning and I was like, oh my God. 
gosh, uh, I got to force myself to get out of bed. We've been, had a very busy week and a crazy week, and, and I was just like, man, another hour would be so cool, God. Uh, but, but sometimes we got to remind ourselves, I get to do this. I get to be part of building God's kingdom. I get to speak into people's lives, and your role might look different, but the role he's given you, you get to, you don't have to. And when my mentality is, I have to do this, that's when it's time to step down. That's when it's time to find something else because you guys deserve a pastor, a shepherd who has the right attitude and the right mentality. So I'm not announcing my resignation today, okay? I'm I'm in the game. Uh, uh, It's just a good reminder for me that I get to do what he's called me to do. Praise God. Um, not because you have to, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. So this is, man, this is God's will for my attitude, for the attitude of leadership as an elder, whatever that role may look like. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I think it's really interesting that 2,000 years ago, in the first generation of believers, they already had to give a warning about leadership that, hey, don't, don't get in this for the wrong reasons. That already the enemy was starting to corrupt leadership and give the opportunity to abuse God's money, to to do awful things, right? Like we've all seen the reports. We've all heard the stories like of of pastors and big ministries who have, man, completely perverted the purposes of what they're called to do with God's money. Um, Praise God. I I really believe we've operated with a financial integrity here. Uh, Years ago, my wife gave me a perspective on this that I I try to remember that the Holy Spirit reminds me of on on a frequent basis that, that man, every time we spend a hundred bucks, I mean, somebody had to earn a thousand. That really changes the perspective when you look at writing a check or or breaking out the debit card. Man, every time we spend a hundred dollars, that represents a thousand dollars in labor that somebody had to put in. For us to be able to make that, that, that contribution, for us to be able to put that event together, doesn't mean we never spend money, doesn't mean we don't invest in things, doesn't mean we don't walk in generosity, we should. But it still causes me to just to take a little step back and say, wow, is this really worth somebody working 50 hours or whatever that may look like to be able to contribute $100 to our church? It's, it's a, a weight that leaders should bear. It says, well, you're not called to get in this for dishonest gain. But we're called to be eager to serve. Verse 3 says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So we're not called to be authoritarian in leadership, right? We're not called to be abusive. We're not called to, man, this is my way or the highway. You guys get in line because I'm the one who's been given this position. We're, We're called to be eager to serve and to be an example to the flock. Verse 4, and then he says, when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, in case you're not sure about that. When the chief shepherd, the head shepherd, the good shepherd, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is the easy thing to do is to be a shepherd and, and to chase after temporary gain. Man, to, to, to take advantage of the finances that have been placed in the church and use those for your own glory, for your own gain. He says, but if we'll remember the eternal perspective, all this is just for a little while. This thing's temporary. This thing doesn't last for long. And so if we'll walk in integrity, if we'll do this the way that God is calling us to do it, there's something far better than that dishonest gain. There's actually a crown of glory that's going to be received by leadership. 
Why are we spending so much time talking about elders? Well, we are going to be doing, as you probably know, elder nominations two weeks from today, September the 18th. In fact, in in previous iterations of City Church elder nominations, we've always done them in August. Uh, We've we've talked about them in July and done them kind of end of July, beginning of August, because it's the end of the summer and it's more, man, in-house people. Uh, We waited until September this time because we knew we were going to be teaching through 1 Peter and just felt like, man, let's actually talk about elders for a little bit before we actually do this. And so uh, two weeks from today, September the 18th, our members will be nominating elders. What will happen is we'll, we'll have a little bit shorter service. We'll get out of service, uh, take about five minutes to say goodbye to anybody who doesn't want to hang around for the meeting, uh, and then we'll come back here and nominate. Our members will be the only ones who can nominate, and that's that's not even like city church rule. That's like United States of America. In order to be a nonprofit organization, we have to have a set of bylaws and have to be members of the corporation who have voting privileges and, and all that stuff. And so this is us submitting to the authority. This isn't just like trying to exclude people and, and hold people out. Um, if you are not a member but you want to just see what's going on and you're curious and you care about boring stuff like this, you are more than welcome to come and be a part of it uh, and, and watch what's going on. We're, we're not doing anything top secret. There, there's no like... Secret handshake or secret underwear or anything else. Um, We're just going to have a little nomination card and write down some names and pray over the names and then go to lunch. Uh, So it's it's real exciting. Um, But even though it may not be exciting, it's important. Um, This is a very key part of our church. And so our elder board is a board that helps lead the spiritual side of the church as well as right now, the financial side of the church. The way our bylaws are written is that eventually, if our church grows to a certain point where we're handling the spiritual side and the financial side is too much for the board of elders, that there will be a split and we'll actually bring on a board of trustees that will handle the financial side and the board of elders will continue to focus on the spiritual side. Right now, we haven't reached that point. That's up to our elders to make that call. When they feel like, hey, they're overloaded, they're the ones who, who make that decision. Um, so far, they, they feel good about what they're doing. Uh, and so we're continuing to have have them in, in both aspects. Um, but I, I want you to know who our board is, who, who are our elders. So go ahead and throw that first picture up there, Kenneth and Naomi Schrode. Uh, this is Kenneth and Naomi. Uh, you may or may not know them. They've been out for a few weeks with some, some real physical difficulties. Naomi broke a foot. She's recovering well. She's back on her feet. In fact, backed in shoes, which was a big deal, which is funny to think about because you wear shoes every day. It's like, but yeah, hey, I can wear shoes now. Praise God. Uh, so she's doing better. Kenneth um, has messed up his back pretty good. Uh, and is actually going to be getting a nerve block, I think, here in a couple weeks. And so he's definitely in need of some prayer uh, right now. But they plan to be here on the 18th if they can physically make it. They want to be here for this. Um, but the way our bylaws are written, our elders are elected for two separate two-year terms. So in other words, when we offer the eldership to uh, a couple uh, or an individual, and so if, if the individual is part of a couple, if they're married, it's treated as a couple. So it's not like, hey, we can pick this one but not that one. If you nominate someone who's married, they come on as a team. Um, obviously, if they're not married, they don't come on as a team. They come on as an individual. And if they were to, like, start dating or get married during their term, we wouldn't bring on the significant other uh, like they would had not been elected to that spot. So just, just so you understand how that works. Um, so 
Uh, Kenneth and Naomi have served now, I believe, since 2013 on our board of elders. They've been elected multiple times. Uh, the last time they were elected was in 2019, which, if you're good at math, you realize that's three years ago, not two years ago. So what happened? Uh, well, we had a pandemic uh, in the last, so we, we did not do elder nominations last year, which would have been the year to do them. Uh, just We don't want to squeeze a bunch of people into a room to do a meeting in the midst of everything that was going on. We figured, hey, this can wait. So they got a bonus year. In fact, all of our elders got a bonus year last year. Uh, But they're elected to two two two-year terms is the way it's supposed to be. And what that means is we offer them the eldership um, for up to four years. So if you get nominated and chosen, uh, you can serve for as long as four years, but you only have to commit to two years. Four years is a long time to commit to anything. Right, And so rather we just built in kind of a natural exit for them. If they want to tap out after two years, they can do that honorably without like resigning, without, you know, what happened? Um, That's, hey, you know what? We served for two years and we're good. Um, So Kenneth and Naomi have served now three years of their two-year term. uh, And they have chosen to stay on for for two more. So they're going to serve through 2024. Uh, Next up, we have Tim and Kim Steed who are actually with us here in second service. This is a very unofficial title, but they are your second service elders. Uh, I, can, I can just say that. Uh, so Tim and Kim, would you guys stand up? I know we got your picture on the screen, but we want to honor you because you're in here. Uh, uh, we got a picture of them, I think, at the Grand Canyon. Uh, and so they also have just served three years of a two-year term with two more years to go and chosen to stay on board. So they're going to serve with us through 2024. They've also been serving since 2013. Uh, So our original elder board that we put together uh, after I became pastor uh, was Kenneth and Tim were were our original elders. And so uh, we're so grateful for their continued service to our church. Uh, We also have Teresa Davis, who if you don't know Teresa, you're missing out. Uh, So uh, she's a hard one to miss. If you've ever been in first service, you know Miss Teresa Davis. So Teresa has just finished her first term. Uh, So she was elected for the first time in 2019. Uh, She also has chosen to stay on, so she'll be serving through 2024 as well. Uh, Teresa is sick this morning and wasn't able to be at church, which Teresa never misses church. Uh, So you know she's not feeling well uh, if she didn't make it. So be praying for her, uh, standing up in the gap for Miss Teresa, uh, but she will hopefully be with us uh, in a couple weeks for the elder nominations. And then lastly, we have Dave and Susan Wiersema. Dave and Susan are the outliers here and that they can came on in 2017 as elders, so they just finished up their four-year term. Uh, So they would be up for re-election. So they will be stepping off the board, uh, and they can go back on if we re-elect them, or they will not be going back on if we don't re-elect them. So that's the status of our elders. I want you to know all that because in a couple of weeks, when you come to the meeting as a member of City Church, you're going to get a card which has three blanks on it. And that blank, those blanks, you can use as many or as few of them as you like. So if you put a name down, uh, you are nominating that individual. If that not, individual is married, you're nominating that couple uh, as someone to serve for up to four years uh, for the next, so that'd be through 2026, if they chose to take both of their two-year options, if, if they decided to take the position. So you can use three blanks. Um, if you want to use all three, if you only feel like, hey, there's one or there's two that I feel comfortable in nominating, use as, as many or as few as you like, up to three. Uh, what will happen is our elders who are currently on the team will tabulate those nominations. Uh, and so we'll know, hey, so-and-so got 22 nominations and so-and-so got 17 nominations, etc. 
So why is it a nomination and not a vote? Well, this was put in place before I was pastor here, but I like it, and we have kept it in our bylaws. Um, It's put there basically where I have, as lead pastor, veto power. Um, And that veto power is wielded very, very cautiously. I've only used it once as pastor, and I'll tell you what happened. Uh, There was a couple who was at the top of the nominations, uh, and they weren't tithing. And so part of the elder responsibility right now is to make financial decisions for the church. And I have a conviction that if you're going to make financial decisions for the church, you've got to be financially invested in the church. Uh, It's also a requirement we have for staff, by the way. If somebody's going to get a city church debit card and use money from city church, they need to be contributing. Um, And so that's something that we we uphold uh, across the board. Uh, Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to be like, hey, you can't nominate so-and-so because they're not tithing. Right? Like that's... We don't want to publish a list of, here's the eligible people because they're tithing. Like, that's, we're not trying to out people. We're not trying to, like, passive-aggressively get new people to start tithing. Like, that's, that's not what we're doing. It's just this is a conviction that, hey, if we're going to have the responsibility of answering to God for how we spent God's money, um, we probably should be a part of contributing to this. Um, and so even in that case, we didn't outright veto that couple. We went to them and said, hey. I want you to know the church sees you as elders, man. They see you as leaders. We see you as leaders. Here's one reason why we feel like, hey, maybe you're not ready. Are, are you guys ready to start taking that step? Is this something that you would consider? And they said, you know what? We, we think we're going to wait two years and try to get this ready, try, try to get our finances to the place where we can do this. And if the church nominates us again in two years, we'd love to take that position. Um, so that's the only time we've used that. It wasn't, I don't believe, actually put in for a tithing veto. Um, I think it was actually put in for a character veto for, as pastor, we know a lot of stuff about a lot of people. Uh, And so I've known many times who was cheating on their wife or who was cheating on their husband. Um, And if one of those individuals were nominated or couples were nominated, they wouldn't be in a position right now to be healthy enough to help lead the church, right? Um, And again, we don't want to put that on blast that, hey, sorry, we we can't let these people lead the church because there's some infidelity issues, right? Like we want to be very cautious um, and gentle and gracious with people as they're being restored, as they're pursuing that restoration. Uh, and so functionally, it's a vote. Uh, again, uh, of all the times we've done this, we've only used the veto once, and even then it wasn't even a full-on veto. It was a, hey, here's a reason why you couldn't do it if you guys can't take this step, but if you can, we'd love to have you take it. Um, and so we will treat it as, if you guys identify people, again, as long as there's not some asterisk of a a real good reason why they're not qualified for leadership. Um, We want to put them in place. Here's why. You're going to follow the people that you see as leaders, right? Like this, this isn't about like building a team of yes men. This isn't about like building like the team of my favorite people to to hang out with. Although I do love our elders. I didn't mean to make that sound like, you know, I don't like being around them. Uh, That's not what I meant. Uh, That's not the purpose of this team. The purpose of this team is to lead the church, And you guys are going to get behind the people that you identify as leaders. Uh, And so we want to put the people in place that that you're willing to follow, that you're excited to follow, that you see as the people that are worthy of being followed. So that's how our system works. I know that's a lot to talk about on a Sunday morning. I don't like talking about church business. Honestly, I don't like talking about church business ever. It's not like my favorite thing. It's not like why I signed up to be a pastor. So we can like, here's what we're doing with the bylaws. And here's why, you know, like that's... Not what I was, you know, when I responded to my call. It was not like, 
I cannot wait to put together church bylaws, praise God, in Jesus' name. <laughs> if I'm just being real honest, that was not the thing that I signed up for, but it's part of the deal, right? It's important. Even though it may not be exciting, it's important. Um, and, and our team of elders is very important, and I'm so grateful for the, the men and women who serve on this board for the way that they lead our church so faithfully. Um, I, I'm so incredibly indebted to each of them uh, for all that they've done. So uh, in a couple of weeks, that's what will take place. You'll get a nomination card. You'll get to nominate up to three individuals. Our elders will tabulate those. We won't publish here's who got however many nominations because we'll go talk to the people uh, and they still have the opportunity to say no. We have had that happen also. We've had people decline for various reasons. Um, and so uh, we're going to go and, and make an offer. Hey, would you like to sit on the board, be part of this team? And they're going to make that decision, pray that through. So it does take a little while. So we, here's what won't happen. We won't come back in here September 18th and say, here's who we've chosen as the new board of elders. It takes a little more time than that to give people time to pray it through. What I want is I want people to know that, hey, I'm comfortable making this commitment. I don't want them to be pressured into it. I don't want them to be forced into it. I want them to have enough time to talk it through, pray it through, that, hey, if we're going to do this, we're, we're in. We're going to make this commi commitment, and we're going to lead this church well. So that's what's going to be going on in a few weeks. So let's uh, go ahead and move. Well, actually, no, one other thing on elders. Here's what Peter says, and I think this is really important. Uh, Peter says there's three things for us to look for in an elder. He identifies three characteristics that elders need to have. He says an elder needs to have a shepherd's heart, somebody who watches the flock, somebody who wants to watch the flock. So number one is a shepherd's heart. Number two, he says, is a shepherd and elder needs to have a servant's heart. Uh, they they, they want to get down and, and serve, not to be served, not to lord it over people, not to have a position and, hey, look at me, but, man, I really want to make a difference in somebody's life. I want to use my time, my talent, my treasure to serve someone. We're eager to serve. Number three, he says that an elder needs to have a Christ-like example, a Christ-like example. So you can use that filter as you pray through over the next two weeks. Who are you going to nominate for eldership? Who's got that shepherd's heart? Who's got that servant's heart? Who's got that Christ-like example? The classic way that I've shared that simplifies it even a little bit more is who do you nominate for elder? Is Who would you go to to pray for you if you needed prayer? Who would you go to? for wisdom if you needed godly counsel. To me, that's, those are your leaders. Those are the people that you look up to spiritually, is the people, I know they're going to pray for me. I know they're going to stand in the gap for me. I know they're going to intercede for me. And I know that God answers their prayers because they have a real relationship with him. Um, and I know they're going to give me godly counsel. They're going to speak truth into my life. They're not just going to tell me what I want to hear. They're going to tell me what I need to hear for whatever I'm going through. Those are the people that you want to follow. And so as you pray it through, ask God to identify those people for you. So it's not who's the best person to come to my Labor Day cookout. Uh, it's not, you know, who, whose house do I want to watch the game at. Those are good things, and I'm grateful for people that are answers to those questions too. That's not to say that stuff doesn't matter. Man, I'm so grateful for a community. Um, but this is a deeper significance than that. Hopefully that makes sense. Let's move forward. Verse number five. In the same way he says, you who are younger, everybody say, that's me. Just claim that I am younger. I'm younger than someone. Hallelujah. Right? You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. But he shows favor to the humble. What a statement. Old translation says God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I don't want to be the one that God opposes. 
I don't even be the one that God resists. I want to be the one that God is propelling forward and pushing towards the things that he has for me rather than holding me back from the things I'm pursuing that I shouldn't have. He says pride is going to bring God's resistance against us. And so he, he says for those of us who are younger, now when he uses younger, it's the same as the way he used elder. This isn't really generational or, or chronological. This is those who aren't yet as mature in the faith those who are not yet in this position of eldership. So, man, if, if you're a little newer to the faith, this is for you. If, if you haven't yet got to the maturity level where, man, others are identifying you as, as leadership, as, as elder, it doesn't mean that you're worthless by any means. It just means, hey, choose good elders, choose good leaders, and then get behind their leadership, right, to, to submit to them, to, to propel them in the right direction. Let's do this thing together. Why? Because if we walk in pride, God's not going to be for it. But if we together can walk in humility, God's going to bless it. I think one of the greatest dangers of leadership is pride. Um, I think we see this a lot of times in church culture, right? Somebody who does really well, especially who is especially gifted, especially talented. Man, if they're not careful, then the enemy's going to bring pride into their heart, into their head, and, and then we get leaders who start honoring themselves, who start exalting themselves. In fact, verse 6 speaks to this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Quality leadership, in fact, quality Christ following is going to be humbling ourselves and letting God exalt us. Verse 7, there's this famous statement that I love to quote so often. He says, cast all your care, cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. I love that the new translation actually makes it anxiety uh, rather than just simply cares. Be because anxiety is something that's just like through the roof in our generation right now, post-pandemic especially. Like it was already high in 2019, and then you add everything that's happened since then. And anxiety is just an, an epidemic in our culture right now. And we serve a God who cares. Let, let, let that just hit for a second. We serve a God who cares about our mental health. We serve a God who cares about our anxiety. He doesn't just care about your spiritual eternity, which, praise God, he cares about that. He doesn't just care about surrounding you with godly people and getting you into a church where you can use your gifts. All the praise God, he cares about that. He actually cares about your anxiety. In fact, he cares so much about your anxiety, he says, just give it all to me. Don't you just cast a little bit of a, give all your anxiety to me. Cast all of it on me because I care for you. I think somebody needs to hear that today. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This verse is not saying don't go get a counselor or don't go get medication. That's not what this verse is saying. I think, praise God, we live in a generation where those things are available and, and where the stigma is starting to come off of accessing those things. I think sometimes in the church, we've been guilty of stigmatizing that stuff and not, not, championing it. I think that, that God designed the brain. And as psychologists begin to understand the way the brain works, that's just understanding what God put into people. And so I'm, I'm for that stuff. But I, I also think, man, when you go get a counselor, get a counselor who's going to do it based on the word of God. Don't, don't just get somebody who's just going to use science. Science is powerful. But when you can find a Christian counselor who understands the science behind it and the word behind it, now you've got the potential to actually have that person help you cast that anxiety on God. It doesn't have to be two separate things. You can put those things together. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. It's one of the themes that we've seen pop up in Peter. Sober, 
sober, sober. I don't know if there were a bunch of Christians in Turkey who were getting a little tipsy or what. I don't know why he, he feels the need to keep hitting on this theme. But again and again throughout First Peter, he says, look, I need you to be sober. And now he tells us a great reason why. He says, you got an enemy. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. When I was a kid, I loved watching Discovery Channel and, and nature shows, and now they actually have kids' nature shows. My kids love a show called Wild Kratts, with like 20% of you know what that is, and the other 80% are like, I didn't know we were doing Greek today. Uh, but Wild Kratts is, is a kids' nature show. They feature a different animal every week, uh, and, and they love watching this stuff. But if you watch nature shows, or, or if you're old-fashioned and you actually like read, like I was at the Casters yesterday, and they have encyclopedias, I'm like, you guys are awesome. Like an actual like living physical encyclopedia in your home, like this is, I didn't even know they still existed, right? Like it's a beautiful thing. Um, if you study lions, what you discover pretty early is the way that lions hunt is lions are efficient. They're actually kind of lazy. Lions don't go for the biggest, strongest wildebeest that there is. They don't go for the baddest, fastest zebra that they is, are. That They pick on the weak. They find the one that's isolated, the one that can't keep up with the herd, the one that's hurt or sick, or wandering away on their own. And that's the one they're going to devour. And the word of God says that the devil hunts like a lion. That he prowls like a lion. This is why it's so important for us to stay in community. To stick with the pack. And when I'm saying the pack, I don't mean just having other Christians around you. I'm talking about other Christians that care about you, that are watching out for you, that are checking in on you, that are aware when something's a little off, when you're starting to get a little distant, when you're not really acting like yourself, that love you enough to check in on you because if when you don't have that, that's when we start to drift. And the further we get away from the herd, the easier it is for the enemy to devour and can I tell you, the enemy loves to devour. He, is, he loves to devour anybody, but he especially loves to devour Christians. It's his specialty. If he can't keep you from knowing Jesus and receiving salvation, he's going to do everything he can to unleash pain in your life. And some of it's inevitable. Peter makes it very clear. We're going to suffer, but some of it we can avoid. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be devoured. I want to stick with the pack. I want to stay close to the people of God. He says, be alert, be of sober mind. In other words, my responsibility to be of sober mind isn't just so I don't drift. It's so I can help you guys not drift. Your responsibility to be of alert and of sober mind isn't just so that you don't get isolated, although that's a big part of it. But it's so that you can watch out and you can recognize, you know what, I haven't seen so-and-so for a couple weeks. Maybe I need to check in on them. You know what? So-and-so's not really acting like themselves right now. Maybe, maybe I need to see if we can get coffee. Find out maybe, maybe they're going through something. Maybe they need some prayer right now. Maybe sometimes you don't even have to have a conversation. Maybe you just go straight to God. And he puts that person on your heart, that family on your heart, and you're going to intercede for them. But those things only happen when we're alert, when we're looking, when we're sober-minded, when we care enough about each other to bear one another's burdens, right? Verse 9, next section here. He says, resist him, him being Satan, Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Peter says that, that when we know what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ and the suffering they're experiencing, that's actually going to propel us forward and be an encouragement to us. Now, I think this is really wise for us in America because most of us don't suffer the way that they did 2,000 years ago or the way that they are in other parts of the world right now. 
And when we know what men and women are willing to endure for the cause of Christ right now in 2022, man, it makes me a little bit more bolder on social media. It makes me a little bit less of a coward in the workplace, right? It gives me a little more courage to speak into someone's life. If they'll endure all that, if they'll put their life on the line, man, I, I can deal with somebody not liking my Facebook post, right? I, I, I can deal with somebody pushing back a little bit against something that I say, man. It, it, it propels us forward into honoring God and pursuing him. Verse 10, when we do this, it says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Don't miss this. God the Father, the one who sits on the highest throne, the greatest throne, the ultimate throne, God himself, once we've endured this suffering, once we've gotten to the other end of this and we've made it into eternity, he's the one who's going to put us back together. He's the one who's going to restore us emotionally from what we've been through, physically from what we've been through, spiritually through what we've been through. He's going to do it. He's going to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. That's a beautiful promise, church. God himself is going to bring that restoration into your life. In fact, Peter's so fired up about it, he can't help but just break out into spontaneous worship. He says, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And we see amen, and we think we're done, but Peter's not done, right? He just broke out into a little moment of spirituality right in the middle of his letter. Verse 12, he says, with the help of Silas, you might be familiar with Silas. He was one of Paul's missionary buddies, one who, who, who traveled and, and shared Jesus with Paul. He says, whom I regard as a faithful brother. So we know that Silas wasn't just close to Paul. He was also close to Peter. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the grace of God. Stand fast in it. Most Bible scholars think that Silas actually wrote down the book of 1 Peter. Remember we said early on that 1 Peter was, is from Peter, but probably not written by Peter because the, the Greek is too good. See, Peter was from Galilee, which is... Uh, like the Arkansas of Israel. Uh, so first, first service I said Mississippi and the church got offended. So I was like, everybody's cool with Duncan on Arkansas, right? So uh, like he, he, he was from, like, in fact, man, when, when Jesus was crucified, right? They're like, man, these men are from Galilee. They ain't from around here. You can, they, 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 they don't talk, oh no, excuse me, it's the day of Pentecost. They're like, these guys don't know other languages as they're speaking in tongues. Like, they're, they're a bunch of hicks from Galilee. How do they have this understanding? Something weird is going on here. It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit as, as they were speaking. Well, Peter didn't write 1 Peter because the Greek's too good. You can just tell from the grammar, from the syntax, that, that this was not some fisherman from Galilee who wrote this down. So he tells us here in verse 12, man, it's with Silas's help. Silas is a Greek name, not a Jewish name. And so Silas stepped in as, and, and basically translated, put down Peter's thoughts, but put them in language that could be easily read. Um, verse 13, he says, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Who is she who is in Babylon? Well, if you want to go down a Google hole, uh, and you can go to 1 Peter 5.13 and put that in Google and ask the question, who is she who's in Babylon? And there's a ton of theories out there. Um, I'll give you mine, and I think this one makes the most sense. Uh, first of all, the testimony of the early church, the early church often referred to Rome as Babylon. Uh, they, they saw the same wickedness, the same decadence that was in Babylon. So they felt that it was basically Rome was a spiritual descendant of ba Babylon. And so they often, it was a nickname. 
that they used for, for Rome. So I don't think he's actually referring to a city in what was then Assyria, what is now Iraq, which is where Babylon was. I think he's referring to Rome because he's in Rome. So he's writing from Rome. And so when he says she who is in Babylon, he's referring to somebody who it sounds like actually came from Turkey. She was called, she was chosen together with you. And so there's somebody who they knew very well, who they were very close to, very intimate with, so much so that he didn't even have to say her name. Now, there is also even a theory that perhaps she was doing some sort of ministry that was so dangerous in the persecution that he didn't want to call her out and, and name her and that that would get back. So there's, there's theories out there. Uh, but my guess is it's just somebody that everybody knew so well that he didn't even have to name her. So we don't know who she was. Whoever she was, she was, she was dope, right? She was great. Like, man, she was chosen together with you. Everybody knew who she was throughout this whole area of Turkey. Um, she sends greetings. He says, and so does my son, Mark. Peter and Mark had a really powerful relationship. You're probably familiar with Mark. He's got a book named after him. Uh, in fact, the book of Mark is, is very distinct from the other gospels. Mark is known primarily for action. Uh, Mark spends the least time talking about Jesus' teachings and things Jesus said. Mark doesn't have a lot of time for that. Mark's telling you what Jesus did, where Jesus went, who Jesus healed, what Jesus was up to. Mark is all about that action boss, like Marshawn Lynch, RIP, right? So, so he's shouting out his, his boy Mark. Mark. Most Bible scholars believe that Mark was actually Peter's account of Jesus, but it was written down by Mark because Mark was... Peter's spiritual son. He wasn't his physical son, but he was this understudy to Peter. He studied under Peter and, and served under Peter, and I'm sure he just heard all of Peter's stories. And so if Peter was to write a gospel, what would it be characterized by? Probably by action, right? Peter was a man of action. Peter was a man who acted first and thought later. Uh, and so it makes sense that Mark's gospel, the one that was closest to Peter, would be the one that's all about action. And so Peter says, look, this is my, this is my son. I see him as, as a trusted man, understudy in the faith. And then verse 14, he closes with this. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, the first part of verse 14 is a very cultural statement. The European culture, in fact, even still today, but not as much as it was back then, uh, was, was all about you greeted people with a kiss. If you walked out and you just decided today, I'm living 1 Peter 5.14, and I'm putting this to practice, and you just started greeting everybody, you go to Walmart, and the Walmart greeter greets you, and you just go give them a kiss of love, you're probably going to jail. All right, like hashtag me too, you just sexually harass somebody. Uh, so that's not the culture that we're in. So be careful. Don't put that into practice. This is where we, we, we got to understand the context of Scripture. What is Peter saying? He's not saying go kiss everybody you see. He's saying be affectionate. Show true love to one another. In our context, that's going to look a little bit different. We don't greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, if you move to Europe, go to missions over there, you might. You might start doing that. You might find a, a part of that continent where this is still being practiced. But uh, in America, probably not the best idea. I would not advise it. And if you do, please don't tell them you're from City Church. Uh, so uh, take your 4OB shirt off before you start greeting one another with the kiss of love. Thank you. Uh, but look at how Peter closes his book. I love his final words. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. He just pronounces a blessing over. He speaks peace over them. Why is this significant? Here's what I think Peter's getting at. 
He doesn't make it explicit, and so you, don't, you can take this or leave it. But here's what I think is happening here. Peter was on the boat with Jesus when the storm came. And as the storm rose up, the disciples start to panic, start to freak out. They wake Jesus up, and they say, do something. And Jesus simply says, peace, be still. Peter writes his letter to let him know there's a storm coming. There's persecution coming. There's suffering coming our way. But I know the one who pronounces peace in the middle of the storm. And so peace is spoken over those readers 2,000 years ago. I don't think Peter probably knew. But he's pronouncing that peace over us today as we read it. The same way that those people 50 years ago sacrificed to buy some land and build a building. They had no idea the blessing it would be in our lives today. I don't think Peter understood 2,000 years ago. First of all, I don't think he thought the world would be around for 2,000 years. He thought Jesus was coming back a lot sooner than that. He didn't have a revelation of everything. He just had a revelation of enough of what he needed to write down. And so he pronounces, I believe, a blessing that we could receive today. I don't know what storm you're going through. I don't know what storm you're heading into. I don't know what all those things look like. But I know the one who pronounces peace in the midst of the storm. And Peter speaks a blessing over us I believe we can receive today. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.